This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Blessedly, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? Oh boy, I feel like that's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, doing well. Doing well. Uh, we seem to be in our um, snowy cycle again, so it's another co- cozy, snow- snowy morning here in Denver, which seems to be happening a lot when we record. But yeah, now I'm doing well and having a good start. Oh, well, it's sunny here. Yeah? Uh, you know, it's... it. It's that period where I keep seeing sun and being like, oh, it's almost that time of year. It's almost spring. And then it, it's not. But I know. You know and I, you and I, I were both in sunny climates recently for yes. for vacations. So <laughs> it, I don't know. I, I still love the snow, but it was nice to get away from it for a little while. I'll say that. For sure. All right. Well, we have a special guest today, Paul. Our, yeah. our friend, Jerry Faust, is joining us today. People have heard... Um, your comments, your you know things that you have, your feedback, um, things that you've written to us, Jerry, since I think the very beginning. <laughs> it has been so nice to get to know you over the last couple of years and uh, to to see your comments. And we've been excited to have you as a guest for some time. So, Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank and- you. It's great to be here. Well, and I wanted our listeners to get a chance to to know a little bit more about you. I I think I've probably said, you know, in the past, this is our, our friend Jerry from Canada, but I'm not 100% sure. I've known it from the beginning, and I think Paul as well. But will you kind of, you know, help our listeners get to know your interests a little bit? Sure, sure. So I, I so obviously, uh, I'm Jerry Faust. Uh, I live here in on the west coast of Vancouver of Canada in Vancouver, but have also uh, in the past lived for many years in Victoria. So um, I originally am not from Canada. I'm originally from the U.S. Uh, and I have lived in Canada with my partner John uh, for almost twenty years. So I've been uh, here for, I, it's hard to believe it, going on two decades. So in terms of my general interests, I really enjoy reading, of course, which is how I found out about the podcast. Um, I love to travel. Uh, I've been to several different places. Uh, I tend to like to travel in cities. I love to take train trips and that sort of thing as well. Um, and other interests of mine, I, I like to be out uh, and visit natural areas, uh, go hiking and that sort of thing. Uh, so being here on the west coast of Canada is actually quite a great place to do it. Uh, so it's a beautiful city. Um, Vancouver is, Victoria is also a very lovely uh, and pretty city as well. And uh, yeah, I've just, work has taken me, my day job is, I'm an IT manager, so work is taking me between the two cities just as different opportunities have, Victoria and Vancouver, that is. So as different opportunities have arisen in my career, uh, I've moved back and forth a little bit between the two places, but just really happy to be here in uh, British Columbia. And uh, it is a little bit cool outside. It's about zero Celsius, or it was this morning when I woke up, that's 32 Fahrenheit, but I had time to walk to the neighborhood coffee shop and get a coffee and croissant uh, before joining you both this morning. Oh, wow. That's nice. dedication. No, <laughs> we, we made him get up early for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Not too early, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, it is wonderful to have you. I do have a question about your train trips. Do you mean just like a commuter train or do you do you seek out like 
Um, you know, I see online these seemingly wonderfully old fashioned train vacations, you know, where you're like, man, I bet, I bet Poirot is on the train here somewhere, <laughs> you know, where they're taking you through these beautiful uh, landscapes. Do you do, do you do those when you talk about me doing train trips or you'd more like when I, when I'm commuting or what's your, well, I kind I, of... I'd like to hear more. I, I kind of like them all, I guess you could say. I when I when I've traveled to Europe, I've enjoyed taking the inner city trains and you know the various subways in the cities. Uh, here in North America, I've you know traveled on Amtrak. Uh, there's the Amtrak Cascades uh, that goes from here to Vancouver or here from Vancouver to Seattle and Portland. Uh, and I also love taking you know, of course. Um, our uh, urban uh, transit, the SkyTrain here in Vancouver. So I like, you know, local metro systems. Mm. I've been on the TTC in Toronto. Uh, of course, I've, I I actually have lived in Chicago, so I took the L and I took metro a lot. So yeah, I, I just have a, I, I definitely have an interest in trains, really enjoy them, uh, you know, uh, and uh, also even, even if they're longer trips, like between cities as well. I will I've, say uh, my family and I, a couple of years ago, um, went on vacation up to that part of the world and we took the train from Seattle to Vancouver. And then we took the ferry eventually over from Vancouver to Victoria and man, not only is it mm. beautiful, but I will agree that a train is one of the best ways to see that part of the country, probably any part of the country, but we saw like bald eagles along the way and you're just going right along the coast and you can see all these beautiful ocean landscapes. So yeah, I love the train anywhere because mm -hmm. I've also been in Toronto. And like you said, they have a wonderful public transit system that makes me very jealous here in Denver where we have a terrible one. But um, yeah, that part of the country is just wonderful. And, and it's great to see it by train for sure. Yeah. When yeah. I lived in New York, I, I would sometimes have trips to Boston or, or to Albany or, you know, who knew where. And my preferred way of getting there was on the train, even though it would take me longer. Um, but you know, getting to go along the coast there, Rhode Island and such, it was, it's, it's everyone else would just jump on that little um, hopper that takes you from, you know, one of the New York airports to Boston and in like 40 minutes, but <laughs> it was, I, I'm, I like to travel by train as well. So that's mm -hmm. fun. I didn't, I didn't, I'd never really thought about that before, but that, uh, that is, that is really cool. Yeah. And one of your and one of your top ten uh, books of 2023 was a book called Eastbound. I think it's yeah. one that Paul mentioned uh, yeah. after hearing about the book uh, and the review and the kudos that you gave to it. I I purchased a copy and I have it in my to be read list. So. Oh, I, nice. I hope you'll let us know how you how you yeah. like it. <laughs> I will. <laughs> it should be great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start out with the uh, the normal question. What have you been reading? Jerry, We, I know that you know this part of the show, and I, I hope you're ready to share. What have you been reading? <laughs> yeah, so I've just recently started reading a book called Small Joys by Alvin James Mensa. So uh, this is a book that uh, is was published in 2023 uh, here in North America. The publisher is uh, Ballantine Books. I believe it's Scribner in the U.K., uh, Alvin James Mensa, it says on the back, was born and raised in Southeast London. He graduated from Bournemouth University, where he began writing his first novel, uh, Small Joys. And so 
I'm about maybe one sixth of the way through the book, and it is about a young man, uh, a young man who was born to Ghanaian parents in sort of the outskirts of London, uh, where uh, Kent and uh, London sort of meet, and uh, the Kent region uh, and London come together, and he sort of lost his way in life. Uh, he dropped out of university. He has, um, you know, a lot of insecurities, um, some, you know, emotional issues. And the book, and I'm starting to see where it's coming to that, the book is about how uh, his French, uh, friendship with one of his roommates actually helps uh, turn around his life. And uh, the roommate introduces him to small joys, uh, including uh, bird watching, which is his big hobby. Um, and everyone in the novel is a 20-something-year-old. Uh, it takes place in 2005, approximately. Uh, and uh, so far, there's just really, really great writing, and I'm definitely enjoying it. Nice. I haven't heard about that one. Did it? How did it cross your radar? Was it on social media that you heard about it, or...? Well, it, it turns out, actually, uh, there is a, a one of our local bookstores, uh, a place called um, the uh, Upstart and Crow Bookstore. Uh, they, they have curated uh, reading lists, and I was just browsing through them of, you know, re recommended books, and I saw it on uh, their reading list. So, uh, and I thought, or recommended, I just read the, you know, the description, you know, I clicked through, I, I read the description on their website and I said, wow, that looks like a really, um, interesting, uh, book to read. So that's sort of how I came across it. One of, I guess, many possible ways to discover a book. Yeah. But those recommendations <laughs> from booksellers, especially if you can find a books, a bookseller or a bookstore that you trust are so powerful. I, I love that. I love always looking at the recommended shelves when I go to the Boulder bookstore or somewhere like that, where I know they have good taste. So that's cool. I did hear about that one on social media. Oh, Thanks to Jerry. Oh yeah. What are you reading? Uh, I always respond to that on Instagram, Trevor. Nice. Yep. I appreciate it. Yeah. I saw that and thought I need to look at this one a little bit closer. So <laughs> the, the cover actually reminded me of a, of a book that I, I was tempted to bring up today. Mary Swan's The Boys in the Trees. At least it, maybe it's because that book was on my mind because it, Mary Swan uh, was an author that I was thinking of maybe bringing up for today's topic. Um, so here's my chance to slip her in anyway. Yeah, yeah. cheating, cheating. <laughs> Honorable mention. Yeah. There we are. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Jerry. Uh, Paul, how about you? I know one of them at least. Well, I know several of them. I yeah. think I might know all three because you also answered the what have you been reading? Yeah, Instagram. and I, I'm actually <laughs> going to be tricky and I'm not going to mention any of those because oh, I'm going to read one, <laughs> a short one that I actually just finished right before earlier this week. And um, as some of you may remember, I read and loved Tarje Vesas's book, The Birds, a few years ago. And it actually ended up at the very top of my, my end of year list for 2022. And so ever since then, I've been kind of anxious to read more of his works, which luckily are available, you know, from a number of different publishers, including Archipelago and Penguin Modern Classics, among others. Um, so the other day, I finally grabbed The Ice Palace off of my shelf, and I ended up reading it, you know, in just about a day or so. Uh, not only did it not disappoint, because I was a little nervous after how much I love the birds, but I could see this one very well ending up on my end of year list for this year. We'll see how it goes. But um 
as in the birds, you know, we spend a lot of time in the lives and minds of some really fascinating and wonderfully detailed people. And in the case of the Ice Palace, it's two schoolgirls named Un and Sis. And Sis is fairly popular and outgoing, whereas Un is pretty shy and mysterious, and she has actually just moved to that area recently. Um, and so the book kind of kicks off with Sis walking to Un's house, which she's very excited about, since this seems to be a real you know, positive sign for their kind of budding friendship, which is just getting started. Um, but once she gets to her home, the descriptions of their time together are, are just unsettling and kind of bizarre. And it does a nice job of kind of setting the stage for, for the rest of the book, which is very um, mysterious and kind of just, I don't know, a little bit creepy, I guess. And so that night after she leaves her home, she's walking back to her home through the forest alone. And I thought I'd just read a quick passage from that to give you a feel for the writing. It says, a noise somewhere down in the ice. It ran along the flat expanse and seemed to disappear into a hole. The thickening ice was playing at making mile-long cracks. Sis jumped at the sound. Out of balance. She'd not had anything safe with which to set out on the return journey through the darkness. No firm footsteps striding along the road, as she had had when she walked to Un. Thoughtlessly, she had started running, and the damage was done. At once she'd been abandoned to the unknown, who walks behind one's back on such evenings, full of the unknown. Being with Un had made her overexcited, even more so after she'd said goodbye and left. She'd been afraid when she took the first steps, half running, and her fear had increased like an avalanche. She was in the hands of whatever it was at the sides of the road. And so that's a little short excerpt, but I mean, it gives you an idea. It's not all quite that explicitly creepy, but throughout this whole book, it's just, it's, it does remind me in a lot of ways of the birds where there's just some of these kind of almost supernatural things that are hinted at, but never really completely explained. Um, but more than anything, there's just some really nice character, character development, some great nature writing. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's one that I've been looking forward to reading for a long time and happy to say that it lived up to all of the hype that I was giving it. So oh, awesome. yeah. that is good to hear. I've, I've been doing the same thing where I'm like, I need to read more of his, that one in particular, mm-hmm. but I haven't gotten it yet. So I need to, I need to get on it. I, it's always I on my, the next book I'm going to buy is that one. <laughs> I know how much you love those penguin modern classics, especially the UK editions. And this yep. is a nice creepy looking one. I saw that they I also did the same edition or the same kind of uh, take on the birds there, you know, that same kind of cover, but I, I prefer, I think, the archipelago version of the birds. I'll say that. Yeah, I don't think they have the rights, um, but I maybe part of me has been hoping that they'll release more of his works. <laughs> they do have what the Hills Reply, I think, by him is out. Oh, because okay. um, I do have that one. I was looking, trying to remember which other ones I had because I'm already doing the thing where I'm plotting which one I'll read next. But um, yeah, it would be nice if they could get the rights to all of them and put them all out. But yeah. in the meantime, this is a very nice copy and, and a wonderful oh, for book. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Well, good. Yeah. What have you well, been reading, Trevor? Well, I'll mention one that I think you're reading, Paul. At least you said you would be. Uh, yeah. That's The Savage Detectives by Roberto yes. Bolaño. <laughs> for us, translated into English yeah. by Natasha Wimmer. Yeah. that that This is our first week just finished. In fact, I need to get on and tell people they can go ahead and talk about spoilers on the Substack because I think people are... Like no one's talking this morning, and I'm like, <laughs> they're yeah. probably waiting for one of us to say, "The gate's open." But uh, that's right. Maybe not. Maybe they're all just like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> they're just sleeping in. It's fine. That's right. Um, but yeah, we got through the first seventy-five pages of that, mm. 
Um, glad to say it has some of the things that I, I've always loved about Bologna, which is kind of this um, sense of uh, a little bit of a sense of unfounded paranoia. Uh, you know, what's going on? Who's who's doing what? Who can I trust? Who can't I? What stories are happening around me that I have no part in? Yeah. But somehow I'm the main character of this narrative. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so it has been fun. I'm anxious to see what people say. Um, but I, I will bring up, I, I'm reading a, a lot of different books right now. I, I used the, our library's interlibrary loan system to get um, some books, including two by Laura Cumming about art, uh, Thunderstruck, and then her The Vanishing Velasquez that came out a few years ago. And the thing with the interlibrary loan is I, I don't really know how it works yet. My wife can tell me, but they have dates when they're due as library books do, <laughs> right. but they feel, I feel really pressured because I'm like, if I give this back, I I might not see it again for a while. So I am trying to get, you know, a lot of those. I have five, I think is, is how many I got all at once. I was going to say, they always seem to come all at once. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they'd take their time and kind of, you Hurry know, pop read. in every once in a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm also reading, um, I, I'm wondering if either of you have ever have ever looked at these, but the I, over my holiday, I read Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz, uh, and I thought it was so much fun. He is a he, he's written a, a bunch, you know, since like the '80s, I think. But it looks like people would probably know him best as one of the showrunners for, or at least you know one of the the main folks on uh, like Foil's War, the television, you know. Um, series there and, and a few others, uh, you know, I, I, because I don't have the list in front of me, I, I won't try and list them because I'll get it, get them wrong, but, you know, kind of famous, fun, cozy British mystery shows. And he's got some mystery books, including um, Magpie Murders, which starts out kind of perfectly. It has a, a woman, she's an editor and she's just gotten in the ninth book by one of her authors who, who she doesn't like personally, thinks he's just kind of a jerk and a creep, but she really does love his mystery books, and they take place back in Britain, post-war Britain, um, and involve a, a detective named Atticus Pound uh, with his own little backstory, and she's so excited to sit down and read it, and kind of starts with that sense of promise, you know, sit down and read it. That's the first chapter, and then all of a sudden, you start at the title page for that book, and you see the page numbers go back to zero one, you know, to, to get you through that. Mm-hmm. And then you read that book in the middle of the book that you've been reading already. And I don't think this is a spoiler. I think that it's in the, the description of the book. I knew that it was coming. The last chapters are not there. And so she doesn't know how it ends. She doesn't know who who committed the murder. She doesn't know how this mystery book ends, but it, she's got this complete manuscript. Well, when she is going around her business the next day to try and figure out what happened, it turns out the author is dead. Uh-oh. And so it's two mysteries in one and they, they, they intertwine and they play together and it's a mystery, you know, based on a book in a way. Well, it was a lot of fun. And so I started book two, which is called Moonflower Murders. And it's very similar in a way that you've got the whole Atticus Pound book in the middle of it. Hmm. In this particular case, um, some a, a woman has gone missing from a hotel. You know, she she 
is part of a family that runs a hotel, kind of a, a you know a posh, beautiful hotel, and her parents come to this editor who solved the murder before and said, "Hey, she says that Atticus Poon, or not Atticus Poon, the 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 actual author of the books, <laughs> came to stay with them right after the murder, and wrote." a book based on it. And uh, apparently the daughter thought they got the wrong guy. I now know who committed the murder and then she disappears. So they come to the editor to be like, look, you know, the books better than anybody. Can you help us out? And so, you know, we get through that all, all that story. And then we read the book again, you know, I'm in the middle of it, but just kind of these fun interlocking mysteries. They're really clever and he's a good writer, keeps you going. He knows what he's doing, you know. Hey, so. Sounds like it. How many? <laughs> how many are in that series? Do you know? Like, are you just you two right now? Oh, okay. But I've heard that there it is planned to be a three book series and then done. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's also got another series that I'm, you know, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, which is a, a book where he, or a series where he himself is a character called the Hawthorne and Horowitz Mysteries. that starts with the word is murder and you know some of these things like if i saw that in the in the bookstore the word is murder okay that just seems like a normal supermarket mystery and i you know not really into those but these are really fun and 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 really really good and i've heard people say that the the um the ones where he's a character or like, they're like, no one does metafiction like Horowitz does metafiction. That's what I was going to yeah, say. It sounds it very meta, like... especially that the first book in the trilogy that you mentioned there sounds very meta, yeah. metafictional. I haven't read Anthony Horowitz, but I've seen his books, of course, at various bookstores uh, around. So it's that it definitely seems like he's, uh, you know, in, in the mystery category, uh, a really good writer and maybe yeah. somebody exceptional. <laughs> I couldn't, you know, we've talked about books about books before. And, um, you know, we've got like A.S. Byatt's uh, possession where she has poetry that's supposed to be this, you know, this classic, you know, well done um, Victorian poetry. And it is really good, but she wrote it. And I'm like, I could never, not only never write it, but could never write a book and say, and here is some of the best poetry to come out of that time. And I'm the one who wrote it. <laughs> It's kind of like that here where, where he's written these bestsellers to put inside of his own book. <laughs> and then he gives it to you like this great mystery. Everyone loves his mysteries. And, uh, and, you know, you have to have a lot of, uh, a lot of courage and, and confidence and it doesn't seem to be misplaced. So <laughs> it's like a Italo Calvino or something where it's like, right. man, you wrote not one, but like seven books right in a row. Like, Oh man, sounds daunting. <laughs> so, all right. Well, it's always fun to go through that that list of what we're reading, but we're here today to talk specifically about Canadian literature. And uh, I'm really excited about this. I'll just uh, really briefly say that, you know, most of my time growing up, if I read a Canadian um, author, it was, it was someone who, it it wasn't because I was seeking out Canadian um, books or Canadian authors. They just happened to have books published in you know, the, in, in America and they were ones that had made it wide. But, um, when I first started my blog and when I, even probably before that, um, I was on the, the Booker, uh, chat and met a fellow by the, you know, who went by Kevin from Canada, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ah, Kevin Peterson. Yeah. (laughs) 
and uh, he and I became friends. Um, he he was retired at the time, and and he was a big proponent of Canadian literature, uh, very much so. And he got me reading the Giller Prize books. He would he would actually um, buy them for me and send them to me because a lot of them weren't available in the U.S. And we would do the Shadow Giller for for several years there, and. It was a wonderful experience for me to kind of get out of my own zone um, and still be, you know, not just like, oh, I read a lot of books in translation, you know, but this is, these aren't books in translation. Um, they're books from my neighbor and the, the culture and the, the topics. And it, it was a wonderful experience. Yes. You, certainly you had some of the ones that you would expect, you know, um, there's Margaret Atwood, um, you know, showing up sometimes on, on these lists. And I probably would have encountered those books regardless. And to be honest, they don't always feel quite as Canadian as other books <laughs> that okay. I read, um, you know, while reading the Giller Prize books about, you know, some of the and indigenous peoples and what they were going through or books about uh, Nova Scotia and the, the church and, you know, and the, certainly books about weather <laughs> where weather plays a big role i i really loved kind of getting that exposure to uh to to that kind of book and and to having it be a deliberate part and so jerry i don't think i knew that you were originally from the u.s uh but i i certainly knew that you know of of, of all my friends you were like Kevin, you know, Kevin Peterson is his name, Kevin from Canada, in being a big proponent of of Canadian literature. And so I'm excited to hear from you. You know, you chose this topic. You asked if we could, you know, talk about it specifically. And I, I'd love to hear some of your uh, reasons for that and some of your passion for this topic. Well, yeah. Um, well, actually, I guess um, for me, uh, tying into what you just said about my biography, not having grown up in Canada means that Canadian literature is something I largely discovered as an adult. Um, so for myself, I mean, obviously, you know, Margaret Atwood, names like Alice Munro, uh, Michael Londace were, you know, these are all names that are very, very um, sort of big and familiar and would be probably even internationally known outside of North American context. Obviously, Alice Munro won the Nobel. Um, Margaret Atwood seems to have a huge presence in the culture nowadays with, you know, obviously, you know, she had, um, you know, The Handmaid's Tale that was turned into a very popular um, series. Um, but yeah, so it was one of those experiences where, you know, as an adult coming uh, and moving, I started to discover that there's this whole other world sort of that I had not been aware of almost existing in parallel very similar to how sometimes when I'll go into say a grocery store or a coffee shop I'll hear a song maybe released in the 1980s or 1990s and I'll be like wait a minute this sounds like it's from a certain era but I have never heard it before you know, I can pull out my phone and look it up or, you know, Google the lyrics or something like that. And it turns out it's by, you know, a Canadian artist was released in 1988 
was a top 10 hit here, but it was something that was not necessarily on the soundtrack of my childhood. So I think that for myself, that was one of it was just the idea of there's, you can discover new things uh, and sort of peel back the onion, peel back the layers of the onion and discover sort of in the depths there that there are other um, great writers to get to know. But also too, I think that thematically, um, there's certain themes that do reappear often in Canadian literature. One of them is immigration. So one of the things that you um, uh, may or may not know is that in Canada, roughly 25% of uh, the population, I think 20 to 25% was born outside of Canada. That is a higher percentage than uh, in the U.S. where I, uh, I'm originally from and where we're we're all originally from. Uh, I think in the U.S. the figure is something like 10 to 12 percent. Uh, so, um, so immigration is one of the big recurring themes. Uh, you mentioned the weather is a big recurring theme. Also, um, sort of the uh, you know the presence of nature uh, is another big uh, you know a theme thematic uh, thing. So much so that. Um, it turns out one of the books I was thinking of, uh, I didn't include it on my list for today, was the book uh, by Marian Engel Bear, which is either famous or infamous, uh, uh, depending on your perspective. So, <laughs> I mean, that touches. I mean, I always thought of that book as a little bit satirical, um, but it sort of touches. And I think it's kind of spoofing that sort of that motif in Canadian literature of, you know, uh, hum humanity and um you know, nature. And of course, you already mentioned some of the indigenous writers in, uh, that are from Canada. Um, there's many, you know, obviously there's many uh, great ones uh, as well. Um, so all of these, all of these are different reasons. I think that the um, literature of Canada is, uh, especially some of the little bit lesser known, uh, there might be, uh, you know, is worth getting to know. And uh, worth listeners uh, checking out if there's something, you know, that we mentioned today that uh, sparks our interest. You just made Great. our resident Canadian, uh, Dorian, <laughs> very happy by mentioning Bear. If we had made it through this entire episode without mentioning that book, he might have once again, you know, disowned us. Yeah, another reason. I get another reason for him to to disown us. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, thanks, Jerry. And again, it, it, it was really refreshing for me to go back to, because I don't follow the Giller like I did, and I really should, uh, because again, it was a great way to not only get to know new books and new authors to me, but again, just be somewhere else, um, somewhere kind of familiar, but kind of not at the same time. Um, all right. Well, as we go about talking about our, our books that we have chosen, um, you know, feel free to chime in, tell us whatever more you have, but we'll go ahead and start today. Uh, just going through the list so we can, we can dig into some of these topics a little bit more. And Paul, we'll start with you just in case you have to bail on us a little bit early today. I don't think yeah. you'll have to, but just no, in I don't case, think so, but I appreciate you. it. Yeah, just in case. Um, so my first book is The Englishman's Boy by Guy Vanderhaeg. Um, so speaking of the Giller Prize, this book was published back in 1996, and it actually won the Governor General's Award for English Language Fiction and was nominated for the Giller Prize. So it definitely got some acclaim around that time. And 
Guy Vanderhaeg is one of those authors that I see often on, you know, bookstore shelves. And I've had a couple of his books over the years, but this, um, this topic prompted by Jerry was a nice excuse for me to pull it down. So I just read this one recently. Um, so the timeline of it jumps back and forth between two interconnected timelines, actually. One is set in 1920s Hollywood, so not, you know, in the U.S., not in Canada. And that timeline centers around a young screenwriter who's named Harry Vincent. And he's basically commissioned to t- retell the story of a cowboy named Shorty McAdoo, who is the last su- living survivor of the Cypress Hills Massacre which is a real life event that took place 50 years ago in, or 50 years before this timeline in Saskatchewan. And like I said, this was a real life event that involved a group of American bison hunters, wolf hunters, traders, as well as a camp of First Nations people known as the Assiniboine people. And so that story makes up kind of the other half of the book's timeline, going back to that actual event. So you know, like I said, Harry is approached by some Hollywood bigwigs and kind of charged with tracking down this guy, Shorty McAdoo, and kind of uncovering the lost story of this massacre so that they can bring it to the big screen. And so in some ways, this reminds me a bit of maybe like Larry McMurtry or even a book like Train Dreams, because it does a really nice job of capturing the Canadian West at that time, which was in many ways still raw and untamed, but also experiencing a period of transition, you know, where we see Europeans and other, you know, relative newcomers increasingly coming into conflict with the indigenous peoples who are trying to protect and save their ways of life. So that part of it was really fascinating to me. And because of the way the story is set up, um, you know, as well as the fact that the details of the real life massacre are still somewhat cloudy. I mean, there's a lot of, um, they, they know a lot of what happened, but there's still obviously some conflicting testimonies and things like that. But, um, it does spend a lot of time exploring the ideas of the unreliability of historical accounts, you know, the way we create myths, especially around movies and art and kind of can shape them to, to do certain things for us. So um, I'll just read two quick sections. One of them I like because it kind of gives a, a good example of what I was talking about, this period of transition. This part is set in the 1920s Hollywood, but there's obviously still a lot of like cowboys and people that were alive at that other time who were still around. And I thought that was fascinating. So this is when the the boy is, or the man is trying to track down Shorty McAdoo and he's going around some of the areas around Hollywood. So it says the next 10 days I spend bouncing back and forth over dirt roads in the San Fernando Valley, the Mojave desert, the Sierras of Lone Pine, all the favored locations for dusters. I locate 14 or 15 crews employing hundreds of cowboys. I had no idea there were so many cowpokes in Hollywood, but talking to them, I learned they've been drifting into town for 10 years, jumping off cattle cars in the Los Angeles stockyards, going AWOL from Wild West shows and rodeos, riding in from the small family spread with spreads which dot Southern California. They're all refugees from a vanishing West. The, sensa- the cessation of hostilities in Europe has meant the end of the beef boom. The big spreads in Wyoming and Montana are cutting back herds and cutting loose wranglers. Cowhands wandered into Hollywood, chasing rumors that $5 a day can be earned as stuntmen and extras in the Western pictures. Maybe they'll get famous, or at least passively prosperous on $5 a day, boxed lunch provided. The only problem is there's too many cowboys and too few jobs. And so I thought that part was just kind of interesting. Like some of these eras, at least I don't think of them necessarily overlapping as much as they did, but it's like the end of this period of of where you could actually make a living as a cowboy. And then they're kind of finding these ways either on screen or, or other ways to kind of, you know, stunt men and things like that. So I thought that was interesting. 
But like I said, a lot of this is also about art and specifically filmmaking. And so there's just one more quick section I wanted to read that's talking about kind of the dawn of um, movies and what's going on at this period. So it's him sitting there in a movie theater and it says, sitting through Griffith's picture is like sitting through one of those dark summer nights when a thunderstorm breaks. Instance of brilliant illumination when the things which flash before your eyes, a tree waving in the wind, a river in spate, your bedroom chair burn into your brain in a way they never would in the steady, even light of day. There's no logical explanation as to why or how this happens. Images take root in your mind, hot and bright, like an image on a photo plate. Once they etch themselves there, they can't be obliterated, can't be scratched out. They burn themselves in the mind. Because there's no arguing with pictures, you simply accept or reject them. What's up there on the screen moves too fast to permit analysis or argument. You can't control the flow of images the way you can control a book by rereading a chapter, rereading a paragraph, rereading a sentence. A book invites argument, invites reconsideration, invites thought. A moving picture is beyond thought. Like feeling, it simply is. The principle of a book is persuasion. The principle of a movie is revelation. And so I thought that was really well done. Uh, Trevor is a film buff. I thought maybe you would like that part. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I said, this is just a really... Um, interesting book. Uh, I liked it. It it ticked a lot of boxes for me with some nature writing. And and like we've talked about one of those eras where a big moment of transition is happening, which I thought was very fascinating. And then on top of that, it had, you know, a lot of interesting things about that, that massacre, which was a big part of Canadian history. So are either one of you familiar with Guy Vanderhaeg or this book or anything like that? Oh yeah. 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 That, that, in fact, it brings up, um, you know, we talked about the Giller, but another kind of great and uh, I would say great source for Canadian literature is the Governor General's awards. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are many of them that they have, and he. This was his second time he won. Was oh, with okay. the the Englishman's Boy. He won for his uh, one of his early short story collections, Man Descending, and then he won again. Wow. Just uh, not too long ago in 2015 for Daddy Lennon and other stories. Um, but also, Paul, did you know this is a trilogy? I did. Yeah, I have okay. the, one of those <laughs> random things where I have the first and the third book, but still need to track down the second. So, yeah, I plan on exploring uh, the rest of those. Yeah. First first and the third, huh? Well, mm-hmm. you know how that goes. <laughs> it means you're committed. I think, That's right. right. You have to you have to fill in the gap and, and get, get going on it. <laughs> and I, I believe sure. the guy Vander Haag is, is actually from Saskatoon, uh, which is where uh, last uh, the last episode yeah. is, is also. Yeah, Sean. Sean, yes. yeah, Sean the Book Maniac is also from Saskatoon. I haven't read uh, guy Vander Haag's work, but I'm aware that that book is part of a trilogy, as Trevor mentioned, sort mm-hmm. of a Western trilogy. And, you know, the description that you've given of it, Paul, some, makes it sound really interesting and kind of fascinating. Um, I liked how you, you talked about, you know, the fact that, you know, cowboys who were actually cowboys back in the day are looking for work now on screen doing yeah. sort of what they used to do. It seems like almost like that in itself is kind of a, 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 a meta comment on so many things in life, you know, and artifice <laughs> and the difference between the real thing and the reproduction. Um, I almost feel like I'm going to reference Walter Benjamin or something like <laughs> work of art yeah. in, the, in the age of mechanical reproduction, which was written almost contemporaneously uh, with the with the period when uh, that book was set. Yeah. 
No, for sure. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. It's one of those things I've noticed as I get older, where when you think of history, it seems like this huge stretch of time. And then you start doing the math of like how few generations there were between certain things that happened. And this is a perfect example of that. So yeah, it's a really good book. I, I'm definitely looking forward to reading the rest of those. And it was nice to finally have not an excuse, but just a motivation to get these books off my shelf, which had been there for you know probably a decade or more. Nice. Yeah. Well, normally I go last. I don't know why. It's not a rule, but I'll I'll go next so we can have you kind of cleaning us up, Jerry. I think we'll sure. we'll benefit from that if you're okay with that. <clears throat> I'm going to go with an author that I I didn't choose because her books really taught me a whole lot about Canada because they they didn't. Um, but she has been called, you know, this generation's answer to Alice Munro, or you know, <laughs> recently. Uh, this is a relatively young, though she's, you know, uh, like all of us, she's been around longer than, than when I first read her, she'd only written a few books. Now she's written quite a few. <laughs> this is Annabelle Lyon. Um, she f- first uh, kind of hit the, I would say maybe the, the big time um, with her 2009 novel, The Golden Mean. Uh, which was uh, shortlisted for the Giller Prize. That's how I got to know it. It was a finalist also for the Governor General's Award um, and a few others. It won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize. I don't, I don't know that one, but you know, it's, it, since it won, I'll, I'll mention it. Um, <clears throat> this is a book that takes us all the way back to Alexander the Great and and to Aristotle. It is a really interesting and really, I thought, well-written uh, book about, you know, kind of narrated by Aristotle, um, talking about this time when he is counseling with Alexander the Great in Macedonia, and it's about their relationship, and it it again just really pulled me into this into this world, and I wish it were better known. And it, it's just fun because I think she gets into Aristotle's head quite well, which can, you know, feel a little bit presumptuous, as we've already talked about in, in this episode of authors who are like, I'll write a bestseller and put it inside of my my book. <laughs> and uh, here's a here's a part where Aristotle is saying, I've been working on little a little treatise on literature, the literary arts, tragedy, comedy, epic, because I've been wondering, what's the point what is the point of it all? Why not simply relate such history as it has come down to us in a sober manner, not pretending to fill in the gaps? And I just really, really enjoyed this for its take on history and all that. But um, she has written more books since, including a sequel uh, called The Sweet Girl that was also um, on uh, up for the Giller Prize. It was long listed for the Giller Prize. And then a book I haven't read, and her third novel, Consent uh, came out in 2020 and was long listed for the Giller Prize. I haven't read that one yet, but it's it was in that that I saw mention of her being, um, you know, this generation's answer to Alice Monroe, <laughs> or you know, who, who's going to fill in her 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 steps. Um, and I, she has written a couple of collections of short stories as well. So I need to get to know her better. Uh, but I do know the two books that take us to Macedonia. You know, not to Canada, but I thought I, I thought it would be okay to to not just focus on Canadian authors who specifically are writing about Canadian experience, um, at least for my first choice. Uh, but have either of you ever read Annabelle Lyon or heard of her? 
I've I've heard of her because uh, she, uh, I believe, is a local resident here in the Vancouver oh. area. And I believe also she uh, teaches creative writing at the University of British Columbia. Uh, her works, you know, I've seen them in the stores, but, you know, um, like many things, there's so many great books out there <laughs> yeah. that I, I just haven't delved into her of yet, um, you know, her, her books. But, um, you know, the, the first one that you mentioned, The Golden Mean, is definitely a fascinating one and you touched a little bit on a theme uh uh within uh canadian literature actually when you said that you know her books she's a canadian writer writing books that are um sent that are not set within canada and that made me think of another writer who i've read a few books of named rohinton mystery uh rohinton mystery um you may know from a fine balance or mm -hmm. some of his other novels he also wrote one uh, one uh, a collection of short stories, but all of those books are set uh, in Mumbai and specifically focus on the, the uh, Parsi community there. Uh, and so, you know, he, they really, I don't know if you're familiar with him, and uh, but uh, they definitely, if you read any of his works, you kind of feel like you're, in a, you're immersed into that world and, you know, um, you know, psychologically, and they're kind of thrilling in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking that too, um, even with the book I just mentioned, you know, being set a big chunk of it in, in Hollywood in the US. And then, like you mentioned Michael Andache earlier, like, even though he's a Canadian author, a lot of his books take place, you know, around the world and stuff. So it is an interesting thing. I was going to ask you if you thought that was a theme. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The English patient, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, for example, it, it's just one, there's one Canadian character, but, you know, obviously set in Europe during World War II. Uh, yeah. And that is something that, yeah, I would see in general that Canadian writers uh, tend to write across borders. Um, many novels uh, and works of literature set uh, over you know, across the world, um, even uh, the well-known uh, Margaret Lawrence uh, has one of, you know, is well-known for writing, uh, even though she prim published primarily fiction. I think it was in the 1950s, uh, she did a journey to the Sudan and wrote about that uh, in one of uh, her nonfiction writings. So definitely a theme. Nice. All right. Well, Jerry, why don't we hear one of yours? Awesome. Well, uh, I have chosen as my first book, uh, the author Andre Alexis, and the book is called Pastoral. Uh, so this book I actually read um, a few years ago uh, during the pandemic. And the story of this novel uh, follows a Catholic priest by the name of Father Christopher Pennant, who's assigned to uh, a small town parish in what is actually a fictional uh, community called Barrow, B-A-R-R-W. Um, but it is, uh, it is known to be close to, uh, to Sarnia, Ontario. So it would be in Southwest Ontario um, that this takes place in this fictional community. Uh, and in the story, uh, Andre Alexis, uh, you know, the, the, by Andre Alexis, the priest, has, um, you know, shows up in town and, you know, uh, th this is meant to be a little bit of 
a, I, I don't know want to take as a spoof or a satire, but it's meant to be a pastoral novel that's sort of doing a few other things than what most pastoral novels might do. Uh, so uh, he, you know, has uh, a good friendship with uh, the caretaker of the church who cooks for him and who's sort of this very, very odd character who's very philosophical, but also extremely down to earth at the same time. Uh, there's a lot of gossip and rumors going on at the church. Um, one of the young people he's counseling is a young woman who's about to be, you know, who's engaged to be married, but her fiance uh, is not a, uh, does not, let's just say, doesn't believe in monogamy. And uh, so that drives part of the book. And the other thing too, um, going back to a theme I touched on a little while ago, uh, is that there are sort of, encounters with nature and encounters with the supernatural that are sort of a little bit magical realism, but not quite all the way. There's not a lot of magical realism in, in Canadian literature. And these are almost, you know, these are things that are somewhat miraculous, but then they can also, uh, or they appear to be miraculous on the surface. But in the course of the novel, um, there are, without giving away too much, there also seem to be explanations for what's going on. Um, so this book uh, came out, I believe it was 2014. Uh, it's published by uh, Coach House Books in Toronto. So they publish these uh, books on this very beautiful paper. Um, and he's, you know, they have like, I think sort of an old style, you know, offset printer. Uh, in their building uh, where they actually publish all their books. So, um, but they, it turns out that Andre Alexis is as a, um, I believe he's originally from Trinidad. He grew up in Ottawa, but, you know, from a literary career perspective, he actually did the reverse trajectory of some writers in that he started out, I believe, with a major press, like one of the Penguin Random House um, you know, imprints, the various imprints that they have. And then he switched to an independent publisher for all of his um, subsequent work. This book is um, one of five books in his series called The Quincux. And the second book is called 15 Dogs. Uh, that won the Geller Prize in, I believe it was 2015 or 2016. Uh, the second book of the five in this series. I recently read the most recently published book, which is called Ring, and it's a sort of a modern day look at sort of the romance, although it's got all kinds of these really, you know, tie-ins to, you know, ancient Greek literature and some really, really um, brainy stuff in there and uh, literary pyrotechnics. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. But yeah, Andre Alexis's uh, Pastoral is my first book. I, have either of you read this one? No. Nope, I haven't. Yeah, at this rate, I'm going to be doing what I usually do and adding a bunch because I am O for two so far. <laughs> no Which worries. Yeah, thing. this book. Yeah, this book is. If you're interested in reading that series, they can be read in any order, and I think this book is actually probably a good entry into the series. There are characters that's and places that sort of reappear in the different books. But you can read them in any order. Uh, it doesn't matter. And I've only read part of this series, and I'm tempted to read the whole the whole thing. Uh, definitely, I would say he's, he's probably amongst living writers in Canada. Um, 
he's certainly amongst the most talented and awesome, uh, you know, writers we have so far. Nice. Thank you. That's awesome. All right. Well, Paul, we'll keep moving here. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead? So my second one, I get the impression is going to be pretty well known for most of our Canadian readers. And I don't know about people outside of that, but it's As For Me and My House by Sinclair Ross, which was published back in 1941. And I read this one probably a decade or so back. And it's a book that's really stuck with me. And bringing up Dorian again, I've talked to him a little bit about it. And I get the impression maybe for people who were raised in the Canadian school system, this might be one of those books that maybe suffers a little bit because it's taught in schools. And you know how sometimes that can kind of lead to the classics being seen as as dry or not all that exciting. But I got to say, I came to it fresh without any of that baggage. And I had a great experience. I thought it was beautiful and, and absolutely devastating. Um, so it takes place during the Great Depression. And speaking of books that may or may not be written in Canada, the location isn't really ever specified on this one. It's clearly a prairie town, but it's likely Canadian. But I, I read that it also possibly could be somewhere like the Dakotas or Minnesota. So it's not hard to tell, or it is hard to tell where exactly it's set. But it's written as a series of diary entries over the course of a year or so by a woman named Mrs. Bentley. We're never given her first name. Um, following up on kind of Jerry's last one, it, it, she's married to a minister. So um, some similarities there. And his name is Philip Bentley. And so as the book kicks off, they've just arrived in this fictional town of Horizon, which we learn is their fourth prairie town that they've lived in in just 12 years. So they've been moving from prairie town to prairie town pretty regularly. And this is basically just the story of two very unhappy people um, in an unhappy marriage. Despite his job, Philip doesn't really believe in God. And Mrs. Bentley had dreams of, of playing piano and touring Europe. So they're both kind of forced to deal with the realities of these lives that weren't really what they had expected or wanted. Um, they both pretty much hate the churches that they work in. They don't really like the small towns where they live and spend their lives. And so obviously that takes a toll on them both individually and as a couple. Um, but this book is just filled with some beautiful and heartbreaking writing. In one of the entries, Mrs. Bentley says, quote, I ask myself how many more years like this it's going to be, the little house so still and dead, the door between us closed, all for the sake of a few hundred dollars a year, four ugly little rooms, a hat that cost $1.45. I didn't used to be that way. And so it's it's rough. It, it is rough for sure, but it's also really powerful. And, and um, I don't know, the, the way he writes the characters is, is special, I think. So as the book moves along, you know, we learn more about their backstories and some of the other troubles that have impacted their lives. And that ends up propelling other parts of the plot, which I won't spoil here. But as is probably pretty obvious from my description in, in that little excerpt I read, you know, it's not a happy book, but like I said, it's, it's incredibly powerful and has that claustrophobic feeling that, you know, I, I like it. Some people it might not like it, but I think it's just pretty amazing at capturing the lives of these unhappy people who feel so trapped in this small town. Um, I saw somebody, a reviewer who described this book as a wonderful monotone of quiet desperation, which I thought was a really beautiful way of putting it. So um, I'll read one more quick passage near the end of the book. Mrs. Bentley goes for a late night walk with their dog, El Greco. And I think this passage just perfectly captures <clears throat> both the book itself and, and the beautiful writing. It says, the rain had only started and was just a drizzle still, but you could feel that it was settling down to make a night of it. No one else was out. I stopped and looked up Main Street once, the little false fronts pale and blank and ghostly in the corner light, the night encircling it so dense and wet 
that the hard gray wheel-packed earth, beginning now to glisten with the rain, was like a single ply of solid matter laid across a chasm. I hesitated a moment and went on dubiously, almost believing that when we reached the darkness, we would topple off. And so that that passage goes on, um, and it's it's beautiful. It's it captures kind of that feeling. This prairie town is right on the edge of nature, and it's you know these towns are encroaching on nature, and there's that back and forth. Like you get to the end of the street and look out, and it's just nothing, blackness, blankness. And I feel like that does a nice job of kind of capturing the way that these two characters feel as well. So, like I said, I get the impression this is one of those that's kind of a, a classic of. Canadian literature that may or may not be well known throughout the rest of the world, but anybody who hasn't read it, I would highly encourage them to check it out. It's it's rough going, but just beautifully done. Like once again, either one of you familiar? I'm not. Nor am I. Nice. I, I, I so thank you, Paul. Yeah, of course. Surprising each other here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh well, yeah, that's that one's completely new to me. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, all right. Well, let me go on with my next one. Um, I'll, I'll choose the author, Anne Michaels. Uh, she's been around for some time and I first encountered her with her book, the winter vault, um, about a dam being placed, you know, in, in Egypt that would flood an old, um, uh, you know, some ruins. And it, I thought it was a, it was a fine book, but I didn't love it. And I kept hearing everybody say, well, her best book is Fugitive Pieces. And so I went back and finally read Fugitive Pieces, um, first published in 1996, and thought that it was amazing. Um, so while she has continued to write, and Michaels has, and I haven't read some of her newest books, I think even just very, very, very recently she had a new book come out. Uh, she's definitely worth um worth following and, and chasing those down, but I, I have not done so. Uh, but Fugitive Pieces is, you know, everybody I think from Canada is probably like, yeah, 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 we've heard about this a lot, but I had not. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of our listeners have never um, heard of or read Fugitive Pieces. It is a Holocaust novel to an extent. It's split up in two parts. The first one is told kind of almost as a memoir um, by a uh, per, you know, a survivor named Jacob Beer. Um, he he was from Poland, and he was the only survivor in his family. And he's talking about his past, but the way it's it's actually this book is so much more uh, complicated. Is the wrong word. Um, and yet there there is so much more nuance and intricacy in the way that the story is told that I don't think it always serves well to just tell what the story is about. <laughs> um, but it is, it is a very interesting story. Um, but it's, it's learning about Jacob's mental state and about his memories and how he's trying to deal with them. And then you're two thirds through the book and you get into book two where you get a new, a new um, narrator. Uh, this is a, a, a Canadian professor named Ben um, Ben has met with this, um, you know, person from the first, uh, section, uh, Jacob Beer, and he is an admirer. Uh, but by this time Jacob has, has died. And so this is the second part is Ben also trying to kind of track things down, um, to understand not only the Holocaust, but how Jacob has dealt with those memories and with that part of his, his life. 
and then kind of relating it to his own um, his own life. Ben, it turns out, is um, uh, the child of survivors, and so this is a really rich uh, rich book. Again, better. I mean, not that that's like oh, that must be a lame book that description, but I would say that makes it almost sound like something we've read before. And I'd say this is quite a unique, a unique book on, on not only these themes, but on the ability to tell about these things and to, to address them. And just a, a powerful book. Uh, again, as I sat down to think of what I would put, I thought, Oh, I'll definitely want to talk about that one. And then I saw, Oh, she just came out with a book called held. Um, and I haven't read it yet. <laughs> so, so anyway, I definitely recommend Fugitive Pieces. I would softly recommend The Winter Vault. And um, then we've got Held, which just came out um, that I don't really know anything about. So anyway, Jerry, you were holding up a, a book there. Is that yeah, Fugitive? Yep, that's Fugitive is, Pieces. Is a special edition that was published oh. several years ago of Fugitive Pieces uh, by McClellan and Stewart here in Canada, which has uh, subsequently been uh, subsumed into Penguin Random House. But it is um, her book, Fugitive Pieces. Uh, this was um, a certain line of this. This edition happens to be a certain line of classic Canadian novels that they reissued, you know, with really nice paper, you know, beautiful binding uh, and everything. But yes, I did read. I read this book. Um, I bought the special edition when when it was available, um, and you're right. It is it is a really powerful um, novel, I believe. Anne Michaels also writes poetry, but uh, yes, I'm not yes. mistaken. And you can really see her poetic style sort of um, kind of appear in her prose as well, um, in terms of some of the way that certain things are phrased. There's very careful attention to language. Um, you know, in Anne Michael's work. And like you, I have read, I have not read the the latest book, Held. it's called Held. Um, I, I think it came out here in Canada. The Canadian edition was published in November. The US edition was published this month. So it's now available. It's probably available to readers in the UK and other countries. But yeah, it's, this was such a, this book fugitive pieces was such a great work that it's almost uh, almost as if you know no, sometimes with writers if you read a really great book from them you, you at least for me i'm almost there's a little sometimes i want to keep reading then everything they've written but other times if they write something that's so good it becomes like you're holding them mentally to a higher standard and you're afraid to work, to read any of their other yeah. <laughs> books because they you might be disappointed if you don't like them as much if yeah. that makes sense. But no, for sure, I that's what I went through with the Ice Palace with Face Offs, like exactly that. <laughs> it's just like yeah. oh, I started at the top, and I'm afraid to go any further. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my my favorite Haruki Murakami novel is still the very first one of his I've mm. read, yeah. and I, <laughs> even though I've read at least ten of his his works, I almost feel like I'm still looking for the original high, a mental high I got from the first book of his that I read. Um, that's the Japanese writer that I think, uh, I think you've uh, mentioned it on at least one previous episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely can recommend second your recommendation, Trevor, about uh, fugitive pieces. All right. Well, yeah, I just looked up held. It's out by Knopf here in the U S and reading the, the summary, it looks like she's again dealing with uh, generations and, um, you know, 
horrible events from from past generations. <laughs> I think she knows how to how to mine that in a, in a good way. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Jerry, I'd love to hear your next one. So my next one is something I know for sure, Trevor, that you've read, and I think Paul. Uh, you may have read this one as well. Uh, it was featured in NYRB Women last year, the the series of books, and it's Basic Black with Pearls by Helen mm-hmm. Vineswag, um, which is a wonderful uh, novel that's um, very hard to categorize. Uh, came out originally in 1980. It's a book about a woman who... Uh, lives in Toronto, but she's in an unhappy marriage. Uh, So she's been carrying on uh, an affair for, I think, a few decades with a man by the name of Conrad or Conrad, as it's spelled in the book. And she meets him and rendezvous with him around the world. um, And he recognizes her because she's wearing a basic black dress with a string of white pearls. And that's where the title comes from. Uh, so in the book, um, basically the, the plot of the book, without giving away too much to those who haven't read it, is that after a series, you know, her normal series of counter of encounters, he's, you know, in foreign locations, he's let her know that he's coming to the city where she lives, which is Toronto, and she has to meet him in Toronto. But um, while she's waiting to meet him in Toronto, you know, the rendezvous without, again, without saying too much, doesn't go exactly as expected or as planned for her. Um, And so in the book, you know, she's wandering around the city of Toronto. She goes to a diner. She goes to a hotel. She goes to um, the old neighborhood where she grew up. And although it's not explicitly mentioned in the book, there's strong strong hints, I think, that the uh, protagonist, Shirley, um, in in her childhood, may have come to Toronto uh, as the young child of adults who were fleeing persecution, fleeing the Holocaust specifically. Um, That's how it ties in a little bit, I think, to the... It's interesting. If if that theory is correct, it ties in a little bit, uh, Trevor, um, to Fugitive Pieces by uh, Anne Michaels. (laughs) But you know, she goes to, say, the old bakery, uh, the old childhood uh, bakery that's still there from when she was a child and that has, you know, obviously things, you know, like hollow rolls, um, hollow bread and uh, different things. And all, you know, there's a really interesting interaction in that bakery uh, with the owner and with the, you know, the protagonist, Shirley, as she's in her mind recalling all of these things. Um, the ending is interesting of the book, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worth reading, but it reminded me just to make that connection of a book I did really like by Haruki Murakami, just thematically, it reminded me of, um, the book South of the Border, West of the Sun. I, I'm not sure if either of you have read that, but both books seem to be about people who are in, you know, protagonists who are entering midlife and they're almost wondering, is there not anything more uh, to this life? Is there not anything more? Did I miss something? You know, why am I, you know, sort of in the situation that I'm in? Um, you know, it seemed like youth, my youth was just yesterday. 
Um, I get very similar, I don't know if midlife crisis is the right way to say it, but very similar vibes, uh, sort of in parallel both books. It, re it reminded me of that, even though Murakami's style and his storytelling is very different from Weinzweig's, I, um, I saw the parallel there. Um, so I'd be curious to hear, I, I think you've both read this book, is that right? Yeah, did. It was part of Kim's NYB yeah. Women series last year. And yeah, I think you did a wonderful job. I did too. I think you did a wonderful I learned, job. Yeah. I learned from your, from your, um, you know, what you went over just now. I was thinking the same thing because this is a, I would argue a, a tricky murky book in some ways, because like you said, the, the basic plot is fairly straightforward, but there is a whole lot going on underneath the surface. And even from some of the conversations online within that group, I know that there was a lot of people who were floating theories that on a first reading, I didn't necessarily pick up on, but as soon as they mentioned it, I'm like, oh yeah, actually I could see that. So yeah, it's one of those, I think that would probably benefit from at least one rereading and maybe multiple rereadings. I'm really glad you picked it. It's a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we, you're talking about it now made me think I, this is probably a good time to reread it too, while I still have some of the threads in my hands. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not starting from the beginning again. Yeah. Speaking of midlife where if I wait a year or two, I won't remember anything about it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. And Jerry, I was excited to read that one because of your, you know, saying, Hey, that's a great Toronto novel yeah. and you know, all that, that was fun. Yeah. So I appreciated your enthusiasm, which got me to, got me to kind of push, you know, because it is murky as Paul said. And I think I would have been like, oh, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I had started it a few years before and didn't get, you know, more than a couple pages, not because it was bad or I wasn't sure it was going on. Just other things popped up. But I, you talking about that made me excited. And then I started to see things, you know, flashing and it was, it was great. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. All right, Paul, let's hear your last one. All right. My last one, I am going with another Canadian classic and Jerry actually mentioned the author a little bit earlier, The Stone Angel by Margaret Lawrence, mm -hmm. a very well-known Canadian novel, but one that again, I hadn't read. And this, um, once again, Jerry, you prompted me. You're doing good work. I'm, I'm reading Canadian novels that I hadn't read before. So um, this is a, a wonderful book. It's the story of a 90-year-old woman named Hagar Shipley, um, who's kind of struggling with the effects of aging on her body and her memory. And apparently it's one of several books by Lawrence that are uh, set in this fictional town of, let me see if I can say this right, Manawaka, Manitoba, which is a rural area of Canada. And like the Englishman's Boy, and actually a couple of the other books we've mentioned, maybe this is another Canadian theme here. Um, the story is made up of two parallel narratives that kind of interact with each other. One is set in the early 1960s, which is kind of the present day for this novel. And then the other part takes place at earlier um, places within Hagar's life, kind of in flashback form. So it's one of those stories we talked about in our um, episode on aging, and we've brought this up several times, that I really like these stories that focus on older authors and or older you know protagonists and that span decades that encompass someone's life so in some ways this maybe reminded me a little bit of something like penelope lively's moon tiger which was another book i really loved about an aging narrator so it kicks off with a really beautiful passage i thought i'd just read real quickly here um, it says above the town on the hill brow the stone angel used to stand i wonder if she stands there yet in memory of her who relinquished her feeble ghost as I gained my stubborn one, my mother's angel that my father bought in pride to mark her bones and proclaim his dynasty 
as he fancied forever in a day. Summer and winter she viewed the town with sightless eyes. She was doubly blind, not only stone, but unendowed with even a pretense of sight. Whoever carved her had left the eyeballs blank. And so it goes on from there describing this literal stone angel that is mentioned in the title. But as we read and, and go further, we come to realize that the stone angel also refers to Hagar herself. Um, she's very closed off and she puts up this wall of protection by cutting herself off emotionally from those around her and kind of present, presenting this stony facade to the world. And so I said in the present time, um, she's struggling with the aging process and kind of fighting against being placed in a nursing home, which she views as kind of this last step before death. And she doesn't want to go there yet. Um, you know, I mentioned Moon Tiger, but another comparable book I would say is maybe Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, only because it's these very strong kind of cranky, cantankerous older women who, you know, as you're seeing their perspective, you kind of get it. But if you place yourself in the perspectives of those around them, you can see how they would be pretty difficult to deal with, which I think is is kind of a fun a fun lens to view the world through. Um, but this book is just filled with lots of really poignant quotes about aging and life, which I really liked. You know, here's one, privacy is a privilege not granted to the aged or the young. Or another one, I can't change what's happened to me in my life or make what's not occurred take place, but I can't say I like it or accept it or believe it's for the best. I don't and never shall, not even if I'm damned for it. So I just really like that. Like she, she it's poignant, and, and, but like I said, there's there's a spiciness and a, a cantankerousness to it that I really liked as well. So um, as it moves on, you know, we're viewing things from Hagar's perspective. So we're sometimes swept into these sections where we feel her disorientation, which I think is really interesting and kind of gives you even more empathy for her because as we're only getting her perspective, we have no idea how reliable she is as a narrator. Um, you know, so we're kind of swept along too. And we kind of get this feeling of disorientation that she also gets. And it deals with different relationships she has with her children and other people who cross her path. Um, it's just a really good book. And I wanted to mention our friends over at the One Bright Book podcast did an entire episode on this book back in April of last year, which is excellent as always. So they dig way down deep into the characters and kind of the historical time frame and a little bit more of a perspective from there. So if anybody hasn't listened to that and if it sounds appealing to them, I would definitely encourage um, them to, to check that out. So again, I, I'll ask if yeah. either one of you read that one. I, I haven't, but I was going to mention the one bright book episode mm-hmm. if you didn't, because it definitely makes me really want to. It's, it's one that I, I listened to even having not read the book because yeah, me too. It, it pulled me right into it in a way. Yeah, so. for sure. Jerry, have you read that one? I haven't read the, this particular one, but I've heard it discussed on a actually a, a different podcast. Um, back when the New York Times book uh, review podcast was hosted by Pamela Paul, mm-hmm. they had a section at the end where the critics for that newspaper would talk about books where they're reading, and they would you know sort of have like a fireside chat. And John Williams um, mm-hmm. talked uh, particularly about this book on one of the episodes and described it so vividly that I do have it on my long-term to-be-read list. Nice. And of course, I'm very familiar, I'm familiar with Margaret Lawrence, you know, as a writer and, you know, her biography and, uh, you know, Time in Africa and, and so on. But uh, yeah, this is definitely a book that, um, you know, I think uh, has stood the test of time from yeah. all indications. 
Absolutely. And again, I just want to thank you, Jerry, for the prompt to, to read okay. these books, because it's funny how sometimes you don't realize. I've definitely read Canadian authors and Canadian literature, but there are a lot of these ones that are classics that are sitting right there in plain sight that I just hadn't gotten to. So I'm happy to have read a few of those. And I will probably have to step out here in a second. Before I go, if I could just interrupt the flow for one second, I just wanted to say that um, this episode will come out next Tuesday, um, which is the 20th. Is that right, Trevor? Check me to make sure I got my dates right. It, yes. It'll come out for Patreon and Substack on, um, yes. listeners on Tuesday, but the rest of everybody will hear it on Thursday. Okay. So either way, everybody will, but as everybody knows, I was part of the uh, judging panel for the Republic mm-hmm. of Consciousness Prize for North America, which again, I will say, introduced me to some wonderful Canadian publishers as an aside. But I just wanted to mention that on the 27th, we have a Zoom party that takes place at 7 p.m. Eastern. And everybody's invited to join. And it's really cool. We're going to have representatives from all 10 of the long-listed titles. And I can't confirm for sure, but there will be authors there. There will be uh, translators there and then representatives from the publishers. Um, It's going to be really fun. And everybody's just going to hang out and and we get a chance to hear from some of the different people involved with these books. So I just wanted to put in that really quick plug that anybody who can join us on the the 27th at 7 p.m., everybody's invited and it should be a lot of fun. So I just wanted to get that in there before I have to to sneak off. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, thank you. Paul. Are they are they going to announce a short list at the during the listening party or is Not that during in the, the That's a good question, actually. I should know that. I don't think it's going to be announced during the party, but it's going to be shortly thereafter, because this is kind of launching the the final steps in this year's prize. But um from what Lori Feathers, who is kind of the fa- founder of this this North American version of the prize, told me. This party is just a blast. She said last year it was one of the high points of the entire process and just really cool conversations with various translators and small presses and authors. So it should be a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sorry I have to leave early. But again, Jerry, that was so nice to, to chat with you. And I look forward to listening to the rest of the episode and hearing you guys' picks. Oh, likewise, Paul. All right. Well, so long, Paul. Um I am curious. I hope you'll let me know if you have read this author's books. If not, I I know it'll be one of your soon-to-be favorite authors. And Jerry, I'm curious if if you have read him. Um, one thing I will say when we when we talk about what we're going to be picking, Paul likes to have everybody send around the author's initials, just so that we can kind of you know without spoiling it too much, see if we might you know be be overlapping too much, and it seems like 90% of the authors in Canada have the initials AM. <laughs> <laughs> I've already done Anne Michaels. There's, of course, Alice Munro. The author that I'm going to talk about now is an AM and even has a son whose books I really like, who is also an AM. <laughs> so this author that I'm going to talk about now is Alistair McLeod. Uh, he is probably most famous for his uh, collection of short stories uh, that he, he, well, he had written short stories for his whole career um, starting in 1968. And a collection of all of them came out in the early two thousands called Island, the complete stories. And I, I love these short stories and that's, that's while I'm going to talk about his novel here in a second, one of the things I love about Canadian literature and Canadian prizes is they don't shirk on the short stories. Uh, they 
recognize that this is an art form. It's not a, it's not a way of building up to writing a novel. They're not apprentice pieces. They are their own thing and uh, very, very powerful. And Alistair MacLeod only wrote one novel. Um, and yet I'd say he's uh, quite famous because of his collection of short stories, of which there is one now. You, I think he published a couple in his lifetime, but then they, they've been compiled in this. And I actually don't don't even know if they're published separately at all anymore. Uh, but I love this collection of short stories. Just love it. it he he was a lot of his stories take place on, on Cape Breton Island Um way where it's cold and up north, you know, up north and east and beautiful, but, you know, remote. And his book, his novel, Island, uh, also takes place there. And it's, it's a, it's a fantastic novel. It was published first in 1999 and it takes place in Cape Breton Island. Um, and when the book opens, we meet our narrator. It's a fellow by the name of Alexander McDonald. Uh, he's in his mid fifties. He's a successful dentist and he is visiting his older brother who is ailing, uh, named Callum. Uh, Callum is decidedly not nearly as successful <laughs> as Alexander. Um, Callum is also about 15 years older and it's partially because of that age gap that they had remarkably different childhoods which led to remarkably different lives. And we go through that, even though they have this shared heritage and even a couple of formative tragedies, they're not really that close. Um, even though they have this intimate relationship and, and of their past, it is just a, a fantastic novel about their relationship and about their family. And, just one of the best books that I've ever read. I, I absolutely love um, the, the, this novel. No Great Mischief Again. When I posted about it on my blog, um, I got a couple of fun stories from Kevin from Canada. He came on and said, there are two interesting stories about No Great Mischief. One is the reason why it did not win the Giller. Someone at the publishing house neglected to enter it, and the discovery only came after the deadline. <laughs> And he says, more interesting, however, is how it came to be published in the first place. All of the Canadian literary community was well aware that McLeod had been working on a novel, but would not submit it for publication. You can tell from his extensive catalog that he liked to write, not publish. His publisher, perhaps the best in Canada's history, drove from Toronto to Windsor and literally stole the manuscript, giving him the upper hand in negotiating with the author to get it finally published. And then he says, I am one reader that is glad that he did. <laughs> so, I am too. It is, a, it, is a, it is a beautiful novel. It's been a long time since I read it, so I do want to reread it. It's also been a long time since I read the, um, the stories in Island, uh, which is what really pulled me into being interested in, in, Ale- or in, in Alistair MacLeod in the first place. Um, his stories are just, as Kevin says, he's someone who liked to write and he really, you know, he seemed to really take delight in in creating just beautiful, uh, evocative um, scenes and memories. In fact, I'll just I'll, I'll read a little bit from his first short story, The Boat, 1968. It just says at the start, there are times even now when I awake at four o'clock in the morning with the terrible fear that I have overslept. 
when I imagine that my father is waiting for me in the room below the darkened stairs, or that the shorebound men are tossing pebbles against my window while blowing their hands and stomping their feet impatiently on the frozen, steadfast earth. There are times when I am half out of bed and fumbling for socks and mumbling for words before I realize that I am foolishly alone, that no one waits at the base of the stairs, and no boat rides restlessly in the waters by the pier. So, you know, I... I just, I love his writing. I love his, his books. There aren't very many of them, so you can be an Alistair MacLeod completist within just a month. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I actually have, Trevor, read the novel No Great Mischief. I mm-hmm. think I read it in maybe around 2007, 2008. So uh-huh. it's been a while since I read it. But I remember being, I you know, it, to use the word, I don't know if thrilled is maybe too strong of a word, a word <laughs> but is the narrator's voice, uh, Mr. McDonald's voice in the novel is definitely thrilling in a way. And um, it the, the book strongly evokes a sense of place in Cape Breton Island um, and the Scottish Canadian community. And also in terms of the relationship to his brother, um, you know, at least uh, one theme I, I also remember taking away is the scourge of too much drink, uh, too much hard yeah. drink, too much alcohol. Um, but I did, you know, the title, of course, I remember uh, comes from, I think it was a, in the book, it alludes to, you know, the the battle, I think it, the, it was the battle on the plains of, of Abraham, perhaps, uh, which was the battle where um, where the United Kingdom, Great Britain at the time, uh, defeated um, French, uh, the French forces in what ultimately became Quebec, um, and there you know there was one a general or other official from on the British side speaking of the Scottish um, soldiers as being almost uh, disposable and said, "Oh, it would be no great mischief if they fall," and that I think is you know, sort of, you know, thematically then echoed in the book uh, as the narrator, you know, talks about his life, reflects, again, this is very similar to the Stone Angel, where you reach a point in your life where you're reflecting back on what has gone before you, um, and you're an older, you know, older narrator, older character, um, but just those themes of resilience and overcoming hardship. Uh, it was a great read. And when we were talking about AM authors, I was wondering if that might be the, other, <laughs> the author you were going to pick, because I was also thinking about another AM writer named Anne-Marie McDonald and mm-hmm. was almost, I, as an honorary mention, was going to pick When the Crow Flies by her. I don't know if you know um, that AM writer or not, but definitely a, a great writer to get to know. Excellent. No, I appreciate that. This is, uh, I mean, it's so fun to to get that sense of, oh, another one, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've gotten to the to the end where you're, you know, I'd love to hear what your last book is that you'll you'll share. Of course, you can share some honorable mentions to at the end, but what's the last one that you're going to talk about? So the last one I'm going to talk about is a book called The Geography of Pluto. It's by Christopher Dirado. It was published in 2014, I believe. It, uh, hmm. Originally published by a small press called Cormorant Books. It's now been uh, republished um, by Esplanade Books, uh, 
which is um, a Quebec publish, uh, publishing house of, of works in English. And I actually uh, picked this book in, because, in part because uh, it would help, help us uh, represent the province of Montreal or the province of Quebec. And it mm-hmm. strongly um, evokes of Montreal as a place. Um, so this book uh, impacted me so much as a reader that I did something I rarely do. And I wrote a Goodreads uh, review for it. Um, in 2018, when I actually read the book, and um, I think I'd like to just read it uh, real quick. It doesn't; it's not a real long review, but I wrote this. Uh, this well-written and well-structured debut novel is ultimately about five kinds of love: love of family, romantic love, love of friends, love of place, and ultimately self-love, self-respect. The likable yet far from perfect narrator, Will Ambrose, is a gay geography teacher in Montreal facing two relationship challenges, the need to get over his ex-boyfriend, Max, and the desire to take his relationship with his single mother deeper beyond surface matters. As the novel moves back and forth in time, the reader learns about Will's friendship with Angie, which is enviably close and able to withstand all sorts of bruises. Other aspects of the novel focus on Will's experience of coming out as a gay man and discerning the boundaries between sex, love, and various in-between states. The other main character of the book is the city of Montreal, with its gorgeously depicted, though, throughout vivid via, which is gorgeously depicted via, throughout via vivid descriptions of its climate its gay village, and yes, its geography. As the reader rides along in the subway, on the subway metro and looks out into the apartment windows. The book left me with an urge to learn French, abandon my longtime home in Western Canada, and move to Montreal, <laughs> a city I visited just once. The strength of this debut effort indicates that the author, Dorado, is blessed with innate gifts and a few tantalizing threads in the closing chapters uh, left me hoping that he is considering a sequel. Surely there's enough room on Pluto or Earth for such an effort. So again, the book is called um, The Geography of Pluto. Um, I want to emphasize it's not, there are some darker themes, but it's not a sad book. It's ultimately a very uplifting book. Um, There's a lot of interiority in the novel. but at the same time, there's also, as you as you read the story, you know, you'll see how he goes to the various, um, you know, he'll ride the metro or ride the bus to neighborhoods like the Plateau and different parts of the greater downtown area. And if you've ever been to Montreal, which my trip was in the late 2000s, and I read this book about a decade later, one of the things I most loved about reading it was that it is sort of brought back the city very vividly to life for me. And uh, like I said in my review, I, I came away with it like, wow, let me just, you know, I put it down and I loved it so much. I was like, man, I, maybe I should learn French too, uh, which is generally, you know, a really good thing to have if you live uh, in Montreal <laughs> to be at least by, at the very least bilingual, move and start a new life because, you know, this book was just so inspiring in that way. Have, have you read the book, Trevor? I haven't. I don't think I... The The title sounds familiar, but it could just be because it's a little bit of a unique title. 
I have not read this one, but it sounds great. I, I will note, I, I wanted to try and find you on Goodreads and find your review. And so I looked it up while you were talking. And Sean, the book maniac, yeah. also rated it five stars on, on Goodreads. I don't see if he has a review or not. I don't see it. Uh, but then some of the top reviews are, what a charming debut. Love this little gem of, a, of local literature, with hit, which hit home on so many levels. So this is one I'm going to be checking out soon. That that's that sounds excellent. And his he's written one follow-up novel um, that I've also read. It's called The Family Way. And that book was also a five-star read for me. It's set partially in Montreal, uh, but... Pro- um, partially in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And it's about a group of friends who are going uh, to take a summer holiday in Provincetown. And they, um, you know, they leave, they go across the border to the U.S. And um, many of the scenes uh, take place in in Provincetown, which I've, I've actually, I've been to Boston, but I haven't been out to, you know, Martha's Vineyard or Provincetown or Cape Cod. But um it's it, it was also a very good read and you know something i'd also recommend and you mentioned honorable mentions and the other book i had been debating about talking about uh discussing on the podcast was uh jacques poulin's uh autumn rounds which is also set in quebec but it's set in primarily in quebec city and along the saint lawrence seaway in the small towns and that one has a wonderfully evocative tone and sense of place. It takes place in 1994, 1995, uh, right before the referendum for Quebec independence. So that gives the novel just a little bit of tension. Um, is it, it's going on in the backgrounds, but I know you've read the novel because we've talked about it on social media, but mm-hmm. it, um, uh, you know, it, it discusses or it, it's, you know, about, somebody who's running a, a mobile library and the protagonist uh, uh, is, you know, going along to these towns, delivering these books to these people. And what was just sort of the last gasp of the pre-internet age. I mean, I think when the book was published and when it was set was right when the World Wide Web was getting started. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of nostalgic in that way as a read yeah. for me, but also, too, there's a, a circus troupe from France that he's interacting with and coming across in the towns and uh, in the small towns uh, there along the St. Lawrence River. And, um, you know, there's also questions about, you know, middle age and getting older and finding love. But that is that's another one of the great, at least in my mind, uh, Quebec novels um, sort of of the last you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, I loved that one so much. Again, so much of it was just the the sense of calm, I guess, in a way, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of lifestyle. Well, Jerry, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say just in general about Canadian literature? It it has been, in a, again, a very invigorating conversation for me because it brings back really good memories of a time in life when I was, you know, focusing on more Canadian literature and has made me realize why am I not at least doing that a a little bit still? Uh, Why have I kind of let that go by the wayside? And that has been, like I say, invigorating because some of these are books that I just want to reread them right now, or, you know, some of the ones that have been newly introduced to me, I'm going to be jumping on them for sure. Uh, Because it, 
there was just a vastness um, it to to that to the Canadian literature scene. It's such a rich, rich uh, world because of the various regions. You know, we've we've I think we've covered quite a bit of it all right today. You know, all the way over to Cape Breton Island. Um, thankfully, you you talked about you know Quebec and the the French uh, provinces, and yeah. then all all the way through kind of the rest of it. Um, there's just so much to delve into. Um, I've been to Canada. I need to go again. I've actually never been to Vancouver, so I'll be I will be going there someday. My wife wants to go. Um, we'll be making a stop at the bookstores, you know, especially Alice Munro's. <laughs> um, and you know, it'd be, it'd, it'd be fun to, to meet up and, and chat books, uh, on any of those occasions, but is there anything else that you wanted to kind of make sure that we, we hit on with this topic? So the, the philosopher, John Ralston Saul, who actually, uh, is married to the former one of our former governor generals, but he's a philosopher and he's written several books. Um, he wrote a book that argued that Canada as a country is all about the negotiation of three distinct groups. Uh, he called those groups basically uh, Anglophones, uh, Francophones, and Indigenous peoples. And I think that that insight is probably applicable to Canadian literature. There's a large body um, of works written in French that, um, you know, published in Quebec, um, possibly some of them in New Brunswick that are translated. Uh, there's a, I, I forgot to mention that the Poulin book was translated by Sh- uh, Sheila Fleischman, who translates many um, Francophone writers um, in uh, their works into English. Um, so you have sort of, in a way, within the country, three broad but yet distinct uh, identities that Saul identified, uh, John Rust and Saul identified. And um, I think it's applicable to literature. Um, there is, this is a large country, obviously, but um, at the same time, there's a, in addition to those three groups, there's also sort of that tension that probably you see in American literature and other countries' literatures as well, uh, between the rural and the urban. Uh, So there's going to be, within Canadian fiction, there's a fair amount uh, of books uh, written and set in the big cities, uh, as well as, you know, as we mentioned, you know, some of the books that are set in small towns or locations like Cape Breton Island. And so there is a big geographical diversity there too, um, as well as, um, you know, sort of a multicultural aspect um, that you'll find in uh, Canadian books and in Canadian publishing. Um, Many, I think I mentioned earlier, many uh, writers uh, in Canada actually were not born in Canada, which is a trend um, just like myself, but it's also a trend that, you know, mirrors the general population trends. So there's a lot of Canadian stories that tie into other countries, be they the United States or, you know, places in the Caribbean, places in Asia, places in Europe, um, as well as um, really great books um, uh, that tie into family histories um, of immigration taking place in generations past. I 
recently read uh, Wei Sun Choi's uh, Jade Peony, uh, which is set in 1930s in Chinatown in Vancouver. It was a really good uh, read, but you know it falls into that category. Both Choi and the protagonists in the book, most of the protagonists in the book were born in Canada, but their families uh, uh, were immig- uh, immigrants and had immigrated, in this case, from mainland China to Canada. Uh, another great writer who is an honorable mention that falls into this category, I would see, is David Bezmoskis, uh, who... Um, Many readers might know through his short stories. I've read one of his novels uh, and I read two of his short story collections. My favorite of all of those is Natasha and other stories. And there is a series of linked stories um, about a young boy and his family who left Latvia during the Soviet years of the 1980s and immigrated to Toronto and resettled in Toronto um, and that book has made an impression on me and has stayed with me. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. I also recently read Immigrant City, which is um, another of his story collections that touches on similar themes, but not all of them are linked. Um, and also is a wonderful, t- uh, another wonderful Toronto book, because most of the stories, not all of them, are, are centered in Toronto. I it's been a while, but I I love um, Davis Besmosgus. I'm trying to remember what specifically I read from him. I know that I read the some of the stories from Natasha, um, and but yeah, the Free World. That's the that's the novel that I that I remember um, reading and really really enjoying. But a lot of his short stories, I feel like I read kind of on the side, and liked them more as well <laughs> so i need yeah. to get back into into seeing what he's been up to because it's been 10 15 years since i last read his his books yeah i believe he's he's also worked as a filmmaker uh and i think he's also so he's written um you know obviously tri- treatments for the screen um i think there is, i have read the free world um as well which it's interesting because with the you know with the theme thematically uh, being refugees, uh, uh, you know the, the protagonists being refugees in this case from the Soviet Union, and being sort of in in transit in Europe waiting to come to Canada. Although uh, in the story, of course, you know it's not clear that Canada is ultimately going to be the final destination, or if their papers. Um, are going to come in. It actually reminded me a little bit of Anna Sager's Transit, which is published by NYRB Classics. Um, and of course, that was originally written in the, in German. Um, but that one also deals with similar themes of, you know, people whose lives are, you know, being disrupted uh, and are looking to immigrate uh, their refugees. Um, and they're looking to start a new life. Although in the course in that book, the setting was, you know, much earlier, it was in the 1940s. And that book t- took place, uh, like a few of our other uh, novels that we discussed, uh, you know, with the Holocaust in the background. But there are some parallels, I, I think, uh, to that novel. But yeah, I love David Bezmoskis as a, as a writer, um, almost a Chekhovian writer uh, when it comes to his short stories. 
Oh, well, thanks so much again, Jerry. It has been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back on sometime. Um, we, we could continue talking about Canadian literature or any other topic. <laughs> it's been well, very you. nice. It's to, been a pleasure. Well, and, and it's always, you know, we, we meet people online and, and read each other's uh, messages and all of that, but it's so nice to sit down and just chat for a little while live like this. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your Saturday morning, getting up early <laughs> to, to meet with Paul and me. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak to both of you and to have this conversation. And I'd love to come back sometime in the future. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again. We'll talk to everybody soon. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time, 